Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rosie Tillis, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We'd like to thank Allegan for their support. We'll be discussing rheumatoid hand, including the etiology, diagnosis, presenting hand deformities, and surgical management. Today, our guest host is Dr. Matani, a Duke hand and microvascular surgeon with dual appointments in both plastic and orthopedic surgery. Dr. Matani, thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. Of course. So rheumatoid arthritis affects 1% of the U.S. population and is more common in women. The etiology of RA is unknown, but it is thought to be multifactorial with both genetic and environmental factors playing a role. In particular, HLA-DR4 is known to be a genetic influence. RA is a common inflammatory arthritis resulting from T-cell-driven autoimmune processes. And this results in an inflammatory response within the synovium with an upregulation of TNF-alpha and IL-1. In turn, this leads to synovial hypertrophy, known as PANIS, that erodes through cartilage, bone, and soft tissue. In order to meet the diagnostic criteria for rheumatoid arthritis, patients have to have four of the following seven symptoms. Morning joint stiffness, soft tissue swelling of three or more joints, symmetrical joint involvement, involvement of MP, PIP, or wrist joints, rheumatoid nodules, seropositive RF, or radiographic findings. So in terms of lab values, RF is positive in 70 to 80% of patients, and anti-citrullinated peptide antibody has high specificity for RA. And for the imaging findings, it is very common to have joint space narrowing, marginal erosions, and characteristic deformities such as ulnar translocation of the carpus and ulnar deviation of the fingers. Now we'll briefly talk about the medical management before entering into surgical management. Initially, RA patients are managed by rheumatologists, and the treatment aims are containment of chronic inflammation, as well as structural protection for the joints. First, patients are started on NSAIDs, and this is really just for pain control and does not alter the course of disease or prevent joint destruction. Next, patients often try prednisone to reduce inflammation and to regulate the immune system activity if NSAIDs are no longer effective, or they can sometimes use them just during flares. And then finally, DMARDs, or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, are used after a diagnosis of RA to reduce structural damage early on. These drugs have anti-inflammatory effects along with structural modifying properties. And this is used for long-lasting control of RA and have two types, non-biologic, such as methotrexate, and biologic. So Dr. Matani, at what point in the disease progression do you typically see patients presenting to you, or when are rheumatologists referring these patients? Generally, you're seeing folks that have failed medical management, uh, and usually these are are people that uh, are going to have significant joint deformities uh, and uh, difficulty managing it with the conventional strategies. Something that you, over the course of the last probably 20 to 25 years, we've seen a a general decline in the number of rheumatoid patients that we see because of the quality of the the medications and the advances in that field. Uh, However, the ones that we do see now are are pretty significantly advanced and tend to have complicated deformities that that are are challenging to manage. Okay. So are patients mainly coming in 
with concerns of function? Is it pain, a combination of those? And when you're advising patients, how do you advise them in terms of the goals of your surgery? Functional loss is really the uh, the hallmark of, of surgical management. So oftentimes it's about realignment of the, the joints and the, the wrist and the fingers in order to facilitate better functionality. And, and that's really what you, you're trying to express people what the goals are is, is to kind of improve function. And there are many folks that, that actually have significant deformities, but they're very functional and are able to kind of cope. And so you're, you're managing it uh, more conservatively. Really, the, the surgical treatments are, are kind of twofold. One is the improvement of function. And the second thing is, is the avoidance of, of the complications that you see with, with rheumatoid arthritis, which is the tendon ruptures and, and joint management in order to kind of facilitate minimization of those risks. Okay. Thank you. Now we will get in more to the surgical management and we'll break this down to several sections, but we will start with wrist deformity because a stable wrist sets the foundation for future reconstruction of the hand. The wrist is the most commonly affected joint in RA and synovitis of the wrist joint weakens the ligamentous support of the DRUJ and this causes collapse of the radial column of the carpals. Uh, resulting in relative lengthening of the distal ulna compared to the distal radius, as well as ulnar subluxation and supination of the carpus, and the metacarpals will, will radially deviate. Put ulna syndrome, which is when the ulnar head dislocates dorsally, results in DRUJ incongruity and impaction of the distal ulna of the carpus. Surgical correction can be prophylactic or corrective. Prophylactically, we hear about radiolunate arthrodesis, and this is only if the mid-carpal joint is free from disease, and this stabilizes the wrist and allows better motion through the mid-carpal joint. I hadn't really heard about this much before. Is this something that you recommend prophylactically? It's not something that you see very commonly. It's certainly something that you're going to have in a very small subset of patients. Uh, generally, you're going to be looking at more of the corrective DRUJ procedures uh, that I'm sure you're going to get into that are going to be more of what you see every day or more commonly and that you're going to be offering to patients. So just as you're speaking of the corrective procedures, the DARE and Solvay Companion procedures are commonly used. And to briefly review, the DARE procedure was first described in 1912 and involves resection of the distal ulna. And this provides pain relief from DRUJ and distal ulna impingement of the carpus. Dr. Patani, do you use any tendons like the ECU or the FCU for stabilization of the ulna when you do DARE procedure? Yes. Uh, usually we'll use a strip of the extensor carpial maris to prevent impingement um, or convergence. Really, the, the DARE is, is a, a procedure that uh, we think of as, as being a very simple one. You, you, you just take off the distal aspect of the ulna, but the technique associated with it, the angle of the cuts is extremely important and the length of the resected stump uh, are things that, that need to have careful attention paid to them in addition to secondary stabilization to avoid convergence. Okay. And the second procedure is the Savicapangi procedure, uh, which involves fusion of the distal radial ulnar joint in combination with proximal ulna osteectomy to provide a stable rotary function. And this preserved ulnar head gives support to the carpus and prevents ulnar translocation, which can be a problem with the DARA procedure. 
Potential problems include non-union of the DRUJ when the bone stock is not sufficient. In terms of rheumatoid arthritis patients, are you concerned about the bone stock and kind of the age of the patient? Does that determine which procedure that you offer? Yeah, the, the DARA is going to generally be folks that are lower demand, um, generally an older population, and the SAVE is going to be uh, obviously a younger, higher demand population. The SAVE is going to uh, give you a more sturdy, durable reconstruction, whereas a, a DARA is going to work pretty well, but, but carries that risk of convergence. And I mentioned earlier that right. there certainly are risks associated with uh, non-union in uh, Salve Kapanji. Uh, it, it does occasionally happen. Generally, rheumatoid folks actually heal better than you expect that they're going to heal in terms of having bony unions. Their bones kind of want to almost auto-fuse. The, the bigger risk uh, that you'll oftentimes run into in these settings as well is going to be a loss of forearm rotation because the salve is relying on the resected portion of the ulna to allow forearm free forearm rotation. And, and you're not always going to get that. The DARA is very reliably going to give you good range of motion, but, but carries the risks that we spoke about already. Right. And I guess a last option would be wrist arthrodesis. So this is for debilitating pain that is maybe non-responsive to the other procedures. And if bilateral wrists are involved, it's recommended for arthroplasty of the dominant wrist and arthrodesis of the non-dominant wrist in neutral to 15 degrees of extension. Um, problems with arthroplasty are, of course, loosening, implant fracture, or periprosthetic bone problems. I've not seen this much either with rheumatoid patients. Do you have a preference of arthrodesis versus arthroplasty? I think arthroplasty is a, is a pretty challenging procedure in wrist arthritis. Again, it does have to be in someone that's relatively low demand because it will have a tendency to um, degrade and, um, and fail if it's put through a high amount of stress. Um, it, it, I think arthrodesis is overwhelmingly a better option uh, because it provides a stable base and, and there's limited risk of complications once the patients fuse. The arthroplasty has a, a significant amount of failure and it's a challenge to salvage it with an arthrodesis. Uh, there, there are patients who do have bilateral wrist fusions. It can certainly be a, a challenging condition to overcome and we try to avoid it at all costs, um, but, but certainly there are people that are very functional with bilateral wrist arthrodesis. Right. And I imagine by the point that they're getting wrist arthrodesis, they probably have not a lot of motion and just bad pain anyways. Definitely. We will next move on to the MCP joints. So the typical deformity in RA results in volar subluxation of the proximal phalanges and ulnar deviation of the fingers. So the pathophysiology is chronic synovitis at the MCP disrupts the ligamentous support. Radial stress of the fingers with pinch drives the fingers into ulnar deviation. So most distressing to patients is often the aesthetic appearance of this deformity. The treatment, again, is arthrodesis versus arthroplasty. Arthrodesis is rarely performed because the arc of the motion of the fingers is initiated at the MCP joint. Early treatment of metacarpal phalangeal RA includes soft tissue procedures to passively correct the ulnar drift, such as synovectomy, uh, with cross-intrinsic transfer of ulnar head of the lateral band to the proximal phalanx or extensor tendons. 
and MCP arthroplasty, usually silicone arthroplasty combined with shortening to relax the tension and improve positioning of the fingers. Uh, Silicone is preferred due to ease of placement and relative accessibility. Most common that we see on our in-service are talking about tendon ruptures. There are two main reasons for tendon ruptures. Number one is abrasion of the tendon over bony prominences, such as the eroded distal ulna or the distal pole of the scaphoid. And number two, weakening of the tendon by synovial invasion. FPL tendon rupture is secondary to wear against the volar scaphoid osteophyte. This is called a Mannerfeld lesion. And surgery for this includes removing the osteophyte at the level of the scaphoid, flexor, tenosynovectomy, index FDS transfer to FPL or arthrodesis of the thumb IP joint. And then extensive tendon ruptures are very common. And this is due to extensor tenosynovitis, attrition over sharp edges caused by DRUJ and radiocarpal arthritis, as well as caput on syndrome. The small finger is the most common tendon rupture and typically ruptures first. And this is followed by the ring, long, and index extensors. This sequence is known as the Von Jackson syndrome. The diagnosis of the small finger EDQ rupture comes from testing the EDQ independent of the EDC. And you do this by extending the small finger while the other fingers are flexed. And operative management includes the DARA and excision of synovial tissue over the extensor tendon. Dr. Matani, can you walk us through the tendon transfers depending on which extensors are ruptured? Yeah. The most common extensor transfer that you're going to be looking at is going to be the extensor indices proprius to be transferred to the ulnar side of the wrist. And and generally, that's because, as you pointed out, the progression of extensor tendon rupture is from ulnar to radial, and EIP is going to be relatively protected. And you can transfer that for small finger uh, loss of extension as well as it can be transferred for both small and ring finger together. So it can be transferred to both of the distal stumps of both of those tendons. When you start to get into additional ruptures, including the long finger, uh, then you start thinking about side-to-side tendon transfers using adjacent fingers. And so a combination of the EIP and a side-to-side tendon transfer with the remaining extensor tendons, that generally is, is going to be the, the kind of thought process and approach. And one other thing to just kind of point out is, is by the time that somebody has loss of the hyperextension of the small finger, they're also, they're going to have lost not only the EDQ, but also the extensor digitorum communis to the small finger. So that's just something to think about that it's, it's progressed further. And oftentimes when you operate on these folks, you find that there's significant synovitis on the other extensor tendons as well. And so it's important, important to do a synovectomy and, and explore those other extensor tendons. Great. The last tendon problem I'll mention is trigger finger. And this is very common due to focal tenosynovitis or rheumatoid nodule within the sheath or the tendon. And what we're commonly tested on is the fact that we do not perform A1 pulley release. We surgically debride the tenosynovitis and the nodules. So just something to remember for exam. And I will hand it over to Rosie to go through a couple of the finger deformities. Thanks, Anna. Um, For finger deformities in rheumatoid arthritis patients, we have boutonniere and swan neck deformities. The boutonniere deformity um, commonly presents as PIP flexion, DIP hyperextension, um, and the pathology originates at the PIP joint. So patients usually come in because of an aesthetic concern, but this is a very typical finding in these patients. Um, typically, it, it starts as an elongation of the central slip, 
the lateral bands sublux below the axis of rotation, which causes shortening in the retinacular ligaments. This causes flexion of the PIP and extension of the DIP from tightening of the lateral bands. Um, there are two different types of these deformities, so either flexible or fixed, and the treatment differs between the two. Flexible deformities, you can use soft tissue reconstruction, including joint synovectomy, tightening of the stretched central tendon, and dorsal fixation of the lateral bands. Um, prevention of deformities include synovectomy of the PIP joint if medical management does not change the synovitis for over three months. Dr. Matani, do you usually see these patients referred over from uh, from the rheumatologist, or do you see them presenting like we're suggesting from their aesthetic concerns? Interestingly, rheumatologists, at least in our system, will, will tend to send these folks for hand therapy, and many of the referrals actually come from the hand therapists themselves. It's uh, the, the deformities, as, as you pointed out, have the, their etiologies, but they also progress from the standpoint of their joint space um, loss as well. And so they'll initially start with uh, a reducible deformity uh, that is amenable to splinting and various different kind of custom-made uh, jewelry, actually, that, that prevents the, the deformities. And so the progression that happens from a, a reducible deformity to a fixed deformity is usually the inciting thing that gets somebody to be sent over to us for evaluation and potential management. Okay, thank you. And uh, now we'll touch on the fixed deformities like you were suggesting. Once someone has a fixed deformity, uh, treatment is usually arthrodesis or arthroplasty. Arthrodesis is typically favored in boutonnieres given that the arthroplasty requires excision and removal of the collateral ligaments, so it would destabilize the joint. Um, The next finger deformity we see is swan neck deformity, which is a PIP hyperextension and DIP flexion, and patients will mostly report difficulty making a fist. So at the DIP, you'll see erosion of the terminal tendon, and that causes a mallet-type finger. And the PIP, there's stretching of the volar plate and a rupture of the FDS insertion, which causes the hyperextension. At the MCP level, you'll often see subluxation of the joint and extensor tendon mechanism, um, which results in ulnar intrinsic tendon tightness. So surgical correction of the swan neck depends on its origin, and again, if it's flexible or fixed. So if there's a flexible deformity, the ulnar intrinsic tendon can be released. A volar plate advancement or FDS tenodesis procedure um, divides the proximal slip of FDS and uh, sutures it to the A1 pulley. The lateral bands can be released from the central tendon to bring the lateral bands volarly. And the Littler ORLR detaches the ulnar lateral band and passes it volar to the PIP axis under Cleland's and sutures it to the proximal phalanx. So that all sounds quite complicated. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Matani, I know I've done a couple of central slip tenotomies with you. Do you find any advantage of doing these other procedures versus just dividing the central slip? Yeah, these procedures are pretty challenging to not only do, but to do well and and kind of give somebody a a good result with them. Uh, And and while they do kind of recapitulate the anatomy really well, they oftentimes... uh, the, the results you get are, are sometimes uh, not what you would hope that they would be. A, a central slip tenotomy in the setting of a swan neck deformity is oftentimes uh, a more reliable result with minimal rehab and recovery. And so that's been my preference in these uh, fixed swan neck deformities, because I think that you can definitely improve functionality and not require a ton of effort on the patient's part to be able to improve their function relatively quickly. Yep. Okay. 
Um, so it sounds like mostly if the joint is fixed, then we'll do arthroplasty or arthrodesis. And then for thumb deformities, the most common deformity is boutonnieres um, with the MCP flexed and the IP extended, or swan neck is a little bit more rare in thumbs. Um, so for boutonnieres, usually we'll do an MCP fusion and, and swan neck, we'll do a CMC arthroplasty or arthrodesis. Is that uh, relatively the same whether these are fixed or, or not? Generally, it's going to be really for those fixed uh, deformities. Um, the thumb deformities are, are a little bit less common for you to see. And, and because of how much the degrees of motion that the thumb has, people accommodate for them significantly. And so by the time that they get to you, that they're going to have joint destruction and they're almost universally going to end up uh, needing a joint procedure rather than a soft tissue rebalancing procedure j just for that reason. Well, thank you, Rosie, for going through that. That is all the content that we wanted to review. I know it was a lot, but we went through finger deformities, wrist issues, MCP problems. So very fortunate that these patients are not presenting as frequently due to better medical management, um, but important to be aware of and to review before our exam. Dr. Matani, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any further comments or advice when managing these patients? Just a couple of quick things that are high-yield topics. One is, uh, as you pointed out at the beginning, the inflammatory panis is the cause of joint deformities. So the underlying root cause of, of every deformity that you see in rheumatoid arthritis is that synovitis from that panis. Then the, the other thing is when you're dealing with deformities uh, across the upper extremity, you need to manage the more proximal deformities before you get to the more distal deformities. You have to manage the wrist before you address the fingers. And then the trigger finger, I can't emphasize that enough. You see it many times with, with people that get a conventional trigger finger release as opposed to a synovectomy and sometimes uh, a resection of the FDS uh, ulnar slip. Those are the things that should be done in lieu of doing a a1 release in these trigger finger patients. Thank you. Wonderful insights. And we really appreciate you joining us. So a common in-service question is an elbow panis resulting in PIN palsy. And this can trick you because you can still tenedes and EPL is out. So good to keep in mind as well. All right. Well, that concludes our episode on rheumatoid hand. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Matani. Thanks again.